Good morning, Highland Community Church. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to look at verses 17 to 34. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, as we talk about this most important topic, communion, we ask, Father, that we would see what is true from your inspired and errant word. Father, we pray that rather than guarding our traditions, we might embrace biblical truth. We ask, Father, that we would talk about these things and, and act on these things, think about these things with charity and grace. Yet may your word guide us. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. A number of years ago, 13 fathers and sons on a shoestring budget went to Greece to see many of the ancient sites. One of my favorite sites is ancient Corinth. It's at the foot of the Acro-Corinth where they would go up a hill and enclosed in a fortress during times of attack. But down below ancient Corinth, we enjoyed communion together. It was a very moving occasion. We were at the Bema. Now many of us know the word Bema as judgment seat. That's how we often talk about the word, but it actually means elevated platform. And on the elevated platform, there the pro-counsel, the judge, would preside over court cases declaring people innocent or guilty. This particular Bema is quite famous. It was here in AD 52-53, according to Acts 18, that Paul was tried before the proconsul Gallio. Now this is very interesting because the Bible says that the proconsul was Gallio, and proconsuls ruled for exactly one year, from July 1st to June 30th. This year would have been 52-53, and it's very specific that his name was Gallio, and yet history knew nothing about him. And so liberal scholars would mock Acts 18 as a fabrication of Luke's mind. But then, as you might imagine, in 1901, at the Temple of Apollos in Delphi, we found nine fragments telling us that the proconsul in Corinth in AD 52-53 was a man named Gallio, who we now know to be the brother of Seneca, who was the tutor of Emperor Nero. How is it that history knew nothing of this man? The Bible did. And then, after 1,900 years, the spade of archaeology proves the veracity, the truthfulness of Scripture. It just reminds us that Scripture is inerrant without error, that it is God-breathed, inspired by the Lord. And it is there, right in front of that bema, that elevated platform, that these 13 fathers and sons join together in communion. But there was something else very remarkable at that site. There's also a whipping stone. We know the date to be about 45 B.C. Now you see this whipping stone, it's up above. On it would be a leather thong and they would tie one's hands to the leather thong. You can see it's low, you're bent over and you cannot escape and there'd be a husky Roman soldier on one side and another on the other side and they would bring the whip down on you. 
Now we're about to take communion. And we're remembering what our Savior Jesus Christ did for us. And I think one way to read the Gospels is to see that Jesus is beaten not once but twice prior to going to Golgotha, the place of the skull. And we know that Jews are limited with 39 strokes. But Jesus wasn't beaten by Jews. He was beaten by Romans. They were limited by nothing but their whim and their strength. How many strokes did my Savior, your Savior, our Savior take on our behalf prior to going to Golgotha to be crucified? Jesus is beaten. Then he's forced to carry the crossbeam, the patabalm, about 110 pounds. He doesn't actually carry a cross. That's kind of what we've assumed through history, but it's really the crossbeam. And he carries the crossbeam through the streets, the Via Dolorosa, the way of the cross, up to Golgotha, an elevated spot. It's there that we see the Church of the Holy Sepulchre today, built in 1100 by the Crusaders over Golgotha. And it is there that Jesus is forced to the ground and they drive spikes into his wrists against the patabolum. And then they literally drag the patabolum with Jesus on it to an upright post. And those posts were always in the ground because we know that during a 40-year period, 30,000 Jews were crucified. And so the posts remained in the ground. So they hoist Jesus up, pulling on the, the gaping wounds, and they attach the patabolum to the upright beam. And there, the sin of humanity is thrust on the sinless Christ. The God-man, the hypostatic union, fully God, fully man, came to earth, never sinned, and is on the cross, and the sin and the filth of humanity is thrust on Christ. And then he died and was put in another man, Arimathea's tomb. And then on the third day, victoriously, gloriously, permanently, he arose, he conquered death that if we would believe in Jesus Christ and receive him by faith as our Savior, we would be given eternal life. That's what we celebrate. That's what these 13 fathers and sons celebrated before the Bema, before the whipping stone, reminding us of what Christ has done for us. I want to pick up in our text. I want to read from 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. 23 all the way to 30. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why you are weak and ill, and why some of you have died." As you and I know, this is the longest passage in the Bible on communion. 
And communion is the celebration, the solemn celebration of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That he paid the penalty of our sin that by faith in Christ we may be given eternal life. And as you know, there are several understandings of communion. My desire today is not to put some down and elevate others, but to look at what Scripture says. And in doing so, we're going to investigate the three main ways that Christ followers understand communion and to look at how Scripture understands it. The first main way is transubstantiation. Trans means change. Substantiation is the substance. This is the change in the substance. When the clergy person comes to the elements, he lifts it up and adores it. That's the technical phrase. And then hoc est corpus myum, which means the bread turns into the body. This is my body. And hic est sanguis myus, the juice turns into the blood of Christ. This is my blood. Ex opera operata, by the work performed. So when the elements are lifted up, mystically the bread is turned into the body of Christ. Mystically the juice or wine is turned into the blood of Christ. Now we might say, well, we can test that chemically, right? But advocates of transubstantiation would say that none of our senses, taste or sight or touch or smell, can understand that it is just the essence that changes. This is a desire by advocates to take Jesus' words literally when he says, this is my body, this is my blood. Now because advocates believe that this is literally the body of Christ and the literal blood of Christ, it came to a point where the clergy began to wonder if the laity might not spill the juice or the blood. And so from about 1416, it became necessary in their minds to serve communion to the laity in one kind. Only the clergy person got the wine or the blood, but everyone else could have the bread. The idea is you're clumsy and I'm not. We know that's not true, right? In fact, it was Martin Luther who was part of the universal church. In his first communion as a priest, he had had a strange relationship with his father, but his father came to his first communion. And because he saw his father, he began to shake in his hands and he actually spilled the, the blood, the juice. And his father didn't talk to him for two more years. Of course, clergy can spill just like laity. And then there was a period of time around 1500 to about 1518, 1519, where there was so much superstition in the universal church that individuals thought to themselves, you know what? I'm going to sneak some of the, the bread, the host, and I'm going to bury it in the ground where I have my crops. And if the body of Jesus is buried in the ground, certainly I'll have great crops. Or they would sneak some more bread and they would feed it to their animals so that their livestock would produce well. And this superstition actually caused the church for about 18 years to give the clergy 
only the bread and the cup and the laity neither. And then we have the Protestant Reformation. And really from 1416 all the way to 1965, the end of the Second Vatican Council, the universal church only gave the bread to the laity because it's the body of Christ and we didn't want to somehow spill the blood. That was changed in the Second Vatican Council. Even today in Latin Rite churches, they might use a, a chin patten underneath some individuals who are eating the bread because if the crumbs fall down, we don't want the body of Christ to fall on the ground. And if you hear that I'm making fun of this, I'm not. I'm not making fun of this at all. Although I don't agree with it, what I see in it is an incredible desire to have reverence, respect, and honor when we partake of the bread and the cup. And that ought to be true for all of us, regardless of our tradition. But I don't agree with transubstantiation, the substances changing, because what is taught with it is that every time Jesus is celebrated in the Mass or Communion, Jesus performs, this is the language, an actual immediate sacrificial activity. So those who believe in transubstantiation, they don't have an empty cross. The cross always has Jesus on it because Jesus in every Mass is being re-crucified over and over again, an actual immediate sacrificial activity. Yet listen to what Hebrews 9, 25 to 28 says. Hebrews 9, verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself, Jesus to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood, not even his own. For then he, Jesus, would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. We believe in the sufficiency of the atonement of Christ. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting for him. Scripture is very clear. There's not an actual immediate sacrificial activity every time you and I partake of the elements because Jesus was sacrificed once and for all. It is the sufficiency of Christ's atonement that we believe in and by faith we are saved. Hebrews 10, 11 and 12 says about the same thing. I'll start in verse 10. And by that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his services offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. In contrast to what Hebrews says, those who believe in transubstantiation have Jesus sacrificed over and over again. But scripture is clear. He was sacrificed once. It was sufficient for all. That by faith we believe and receive Jesus Christ. We are given eternal life. Interestingly enough, this idea of transubstantiation 
is a late doctrine. It's part of the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215 A.D. What did the church believe prior to that? It believed in the memorial view that when Jesus said, this is my body, what he meant is this represents my body. And when he said, this is my blood, what he meant is this represents my blood. Now one could come back and say, well, if Jesus meant this represents, why didn't he say so? Well, that question is a good one, but the concern is mitigated by the fact that Jesus constantly talks in metaphors, does he not? And so we read the I am statements of John. John 6, Jesus said, I am the bread. John 8, he says, I am the light. John 10, he says, I am the gate. John 10, he says, I am the shepherd. John 11, he says, that I am the resurrection and the life. John 14, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. John 15, he says, I am a vine. Is Jesus really a vine? Is he really a road? Is he really a gate? Is he really a shepherd? Is he really a flashlight? Is he really bread? No, these are metaphors. Jesus constantly spoke metaphorically. And that's what he's doing when he says, this is my body. Metaphorically, this represents my body. This is my blood. Metaphorically, this represents my blood. Jesus is telling us that this is a reenactment, a remembrance, a solemn celebration of what he did on our behalf. The third view that is very common today is consubstantiation. Con means with, substantiation means substance. It's the idea that every time we partake of the bread and the cup, Jesus, and this is the technical language, is within, under, and through the elements. As a sponge is filled with water, but the sponge is not water. The water is in, with, through, and under the sponge. So Jesus is in, with, through, and under the elements as we partake of the Lord's Supper. This was Dr. Martin Luther's view. He wanted to say that transubstantiation, the changing of the substance, was not true. But he also wanted to remind us that Jesus is present when we partake of the elements. What are we to say to this? Well, certainly Jesus is present when we partake of the elements. If we partake of the elements in a God-honoring, God-glorifying way, Jesus is present. But the language in, with, through, and under is not in the Bible. It's just extra biblical. It's not wrong. It's just not what Scripture actually says. What Scripture says is that Jesus is with us when we partake of the elements but not those particular words. Are they dangerous words? No. Are they concerning words? Not to me. But I like the memorial view because that seems to be what the church taught. It seems to square with how Jesus uses metaphorical language. This represents my body. This represents my blood. And that's what I want to remember when I partake of the elements. It reminds us of what Jesus did. So 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he the Father made him the Son who knew no sin to be sin for us that through him, through faith in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. That's what we celebrate. That's what we do during communion. We reflect on what Jesus has done. He's paid it all. The atonement is sufficient. 
He went to the cross. He paid the penalty of sin, which is death. That by faith in Christ, we might be given eternal life. So when we come to the elements, what does the text tell us? It says, whoever therefore eats of the bread or drinks of the cup in a manner that is unworthy will be guilty Concerning the body and the blood of the Lord, let a man examine himself. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats or drinks without discerning the body drinks judgment upon himself. That's why some of you are sick and some have even died. So when we come to the elements, there should be a time of reflection. A time when we make sure that we are in a right relationship with the Lord because we do not want to eat or drink in an unworthy fashion. What might an unworthy fashion be? Well, first, an unworthy fashion is not knowing Jesus Christ as one's personal Savior. It may be that today, today might be the day when you say yes. I know I'm a sinner. A sin is any attitude, action, thought, motive, inactivity, motive that is outside the will of God. That's sin. It's missing God's perfect mark in our lives. And we acknowledge that we're sinners. And we realize that the Bible says all have sinned, all have fallen short of the the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. And someone needs to pay the penalty of sin, our sin, which is death. And that's why Jesus went to the cross. And by faith, by faith, we believe that we're sinners and that Jesus died for us and rose again, that he conquered death. And we ask him to be our Savior, our Lord, and the power of God's Spirit. We begin to turn from sin. We need to know that we are believers in Christ It's not our worthiness. It's Christ's worthiness imputed to us through faith in Jesus. And so this is for believers only. You've got to know Christ. Otherwise, please let the elements pass. Second, unworthy is if even knowing Christ, we're involved in a flagrant, unrepentant sin. A besetting sin in our life that we're not dealing with. We're not confessing. We're not asking God to empower us to turn from. We kind of massage that sin. And we're not ready to deal with it through confession. And through the hard work of God transforming us. Turning us away from sin and towards righteousness. We're not willing to deal with that. Then we are unworthy. And we ought to pass the elements. It could be even to a small unworthiness. Maybe on the way to church today, there was a family explosion in the van. I mean, people are mad at people. And we're not ready to get right and ask for forgiveness and reconcile. Then just let the elements pass. On several occasions in my life when I'm supposed to lead communion, there were areas in my life I wasn't reconciling with the Lord. And I had to get someone else to lead communion Because I wasn't worthy and neither could I even participate. I needed to let the elements pass. Parents of younger children. This is a parental decision that we make. A child can accept Christ at a very young age. 
A child can be baptized at a very young age. It's a one-time event. Communion is repetitive. And we need to make sure our kids are of an old enough age where they're following the service, where they can ask the Lord to cleanse them and get right with the Lord and focus on communion. Otherwise, the truth is we should be not allowing our younger kids to take communion. You can accept Christ earlier than you ought to take communion. You can be baptized earlier than you ought to take communion. And it's different for every child and every family. But one of the parental roles that we play is to decide when our kids can take communion and not. And even if we allow them to, if we know that they're fooling around in the service, they're not paying attention, we might on that day say, no, not today. Let the elements pass because the text says that we could eat or drink judgment upon ourselves. Third, we're unworthy if we're not focused on Christ. We could be saying, man, is this sermon ever going to end? There's a ball game to watch. Or we could be thinking of the activities of yesterday, good or bad, or daydreaming and not focusing on Christ. And then the communion comes and we just grab the elements and we partake them kind of by rote, just like, you know, we just do it. We go through the motions. That's an unworthy fashion. We need to know Christ. We need to be confessed and repented up. We need to be focused on Christ. And finally, we need to be worshiping Christ. It's not even enough to be listening in the service or paying attention. We need to be having hearts towards the Lord. Sometimes we can listen and say, that has got to be one of the worst sermons I have ever heard. And the way he dresses, the boy needs help. And the songs that were chosen today and the instrumentation, and we listen and we're focused, but we're not worshiping Christ. To be worthy is to know Christ, to be confessed up, to be focused on Christ, and to be worshiping Christ. If that's you today, my friend, I would encourage you to partake of the elements. If some of us need to confess and get right in a moment, we're going to have some music. Please do that. If some may need to accept Christ as Savior, today is a great day. Say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. I accept your death as a payment of my sin. Your resurrection is evidence of life after the grave. Be my Savior. Be my Lord. Orient my life towards you. I love you. I want you to redeem, forgive, cleanse me. But if we're not focused on the Lord, please let the elements go by because we don't want anyone to eat or drink judgment upon oneself. Let's pray. Father God, in a moment, we're going to go into a communion service. We ask, Father, that if some do not know your Son as Savior, today would be the day that they would believe and receive Jesus. If some of us have sins that we have not dealt with, forgive us, Lord. Convict us, Lord. In the power of your spirit, help us to turn from sin and towards righteousness and to overcome besetting sins. 
Help us to focus on you and worship you. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.